<laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Today on the program, we have Larry Paul. He is the director of the Institute of Pyramid Research, and I'm extremely happy to have him on the show because he uh, he uh, it goes through a whole bunch of stuff that I had never heard from anywhere else and considered about Egyptology in the in in the alternative community. And I just thought it would be uh, a great uh, a great experience to have him on the show. But thank you, Larry, very much for coming on the program. Sure, it's my pleasure. Nice to be with you, Jay. And so, why don't you just give the people a little bit of uh, a little bit of your background, and maybe take us to uh, how you came to to running these uh, these these uh, tours that you run in Egypt? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I really prefer to do the uh, the research tours. I do do uh, regular tours to you know just to bring money into the institute. Uh, I like those kind of you know float down the Nile five star cruise tours. But I really prefer just going there rugged and and doing the research that I've done because I've made quite a, a number, I think, of significant discoveries there. So the way I got into it, I've, I've, uh, I, don't, I can't remember how I first started reading about, you know, the esoteric connections with the Great Pyramid. But I've always been fascinated with that. And, and I was in the infancy of the Internet. So I have the top level domain names. I've got greatpyramid.org. I've got greatpyramid.us because I got in really early and I had like a million hits like real quick. Uh, you know, on, on my page. But then I got into uh, teaching, I detoured and I kind of left that whole thing. And so I've just come back in, in the past few years, really, to, you know, to the internet and stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, my, the bulk of my career was high school and college teaching. I taught political science at the college level. I taught uh, world history and uh, civics social science at the high school level. But, uh, you know, my students would invariably start laughing as soon as I told them about another job because I held close to 40 jobs in my life. And it, and it really is unbelievable, the list of things I've done. And it sounds like I'd be making it up if I say it, but let me just try and name some of the things. So besides being a bouncer at a bar and a cab driver and running a tree business where I was a solo climber, and so I've got chainsaw cuts on my arm, uh, I also was the director of marketing for 12 Oaks Corporate Housing, a major corporation in Chicago. Uh, I was uh, uh, an adjunct uh, professor at, uh, and taught sociology and political science at a couple colleges. Um, I have, uh, you know, just it, it goes on and on. So I just, you know, I was a playground leader for two summers. I uh, ran, a, ran a playground of kids. I uh, did uh, patio window installation. I worked as a mason. I've been a, a carpenter. Um, you know, uh, a gardener. I ran a tree business uh, when, when I did my my uh, work on trees and stuff as a lumberjack for for five or six years. I made my living at that. So I've done a lot of things. But th when I finally got into teaching, um, I always kept this avocation of Egyptology. In my world history classes, I always had a unit about the Great Pyramid. Uh, I kept, uh, you know, an avocational interest. So when I really retired from, from those teaching stints, I, f you know, formally put myself full-time into what I'm doing now, which is basically research on pyramids around the world, but especially in Egypt and especially in Giza. And that's really where I concentrate most of my time now. So uh, I love every time I've gone there, I'll, I'll be leading uh, an expedition next month. It'll be my eighth time in Egypt and uh, I, it never grows old. I'm uh, always excited to be there. It's magical. It's mysterious and uh, never disappoints. And I, I kind of think the fact that you've had all these different jobs, kind of a jack of all trades, I, I think that maybe points to some type of a proclivity of yours to, to uh, be more eclectic and to to pull ideas from different places and to and to look more outwards at the landscape and see things that people might have missed. And one of the things that you have up on your YouTube channel is this uh, playlist you have on the connections of Orion to the pyramids of Giza. Now, right. now there's uh, people have been talking about this connection for a long time, but it's usually relegated to the three main stars of Orion's belt, and it. And from what I can tell from your videos, uh, you've you've uh, worked out some connections with maybe some more of those stars down on the on the Giza plateau. What are some of the connections that you found on that? Well, uh, actually, you know, I, I wrote a book about it called Enoch, uh, and that stands for Egypt uh, New Orion Connection Hypothesis. So instead of saying Orion Correlation Theory, I said Orion Connection Hypothesis (OCH), and it's new and it's Egyptian. Because other cultures besides the Egyptian have seen Orion, you know, the Hopi Indians in Arizona, you know, the Chinese 
Mexican pyramids. So other people have put Orion down in the soil. So, so I look at specifically at the way the Egyptians put Orion on the soil. And I first, when I first got into that, I wonder, well, I thought, who am I? I don't understand spherical, you know, geography. I, I you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not real good with astronomy programs, you know, on what basis, but, but the confidence I gained was realizing I just had to find what the Egyptians did. You know, they might've done the math or the spherical geometry or something, but I just, and I, I really feel like I made uh, some, some sound connections so that I felt I could be confident in writing a book. So, uh, you know, Robert Grant, who's a, an influencer on, uh, on Instagram, uh, pretty widely known, he, he wrote uh, the uh, preface or the foreword, I should say, to my book for, for its next edition, which I hope I can get out pretty soon. But, but uh, when, I, when I started out, I, I started the idea of figuring out where the stars of Orion would be on Egyptian soil. And then looking for pyramids at those spots. That that was what I started with. So sort of a, an archaeo, archaeo astronomical astronomical thing. Well, and and I just set out to do that, you know. And one of the things Robert Grant said in his forward is like, you know, the first time you heard about Robert Babal's theory of the Orion correlation theory, he thought, well, what about beyond the belt stars? Like Orion's a whole constellation. Why do we call it, you know? The Orion uh, correlation theory, when all we're correlating are the three belt stars, you know, who's known by their belt other than a heavyweight champion, you know, I mean, so, you know, you Orion has a head, he's got arms, he's got a leg, where are they in Egypt, okay? So, as I began to chase them down, you know, go out in the desert, go to the places where uh, my GPS points told me that they were, I came to some conclusions that I had nowhere in my mind uh, once I started doing it. So, um, you know, in, 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 in a sense, one of them was that what I was to look for wasn't necessarily an old kingdom structure, although one of my mentors in this, uh, Larry Hunter, who's got a long history in, in, in Giza, uh, you know, he said that at all those sites where I went, there were pyramids, you know, 30, 30 meters down. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I look for what's there now. And it sort of became, I felt like I was being guided because, you know, the, I just simply did a simple way of taking the stars of Orion and laying them onto Egypt and then going to the places that my GPS told me they were. And it was like, you know, G, these, these providences happened, but like one, I mean, and it, and it led to, again, conclusions really, in some cases, along the lines of ecology. Let me just give you one quick example. Okay, so the, uh, the, the Orion Nebula, which is, you know, hangs down off of his belt, it's really like the, uh, the sword of Orion goes through, you know, in depicting in the, the making Orion look like, you know, the hunter that he is, really, it's just a bunch of stars. But that part of where the Orion Nebula is, is like, his sword. And, and so I wanted to see, you know, what was at the Orion Nebula. Now the Orion Nebula is beautiful. If you look at it through a telescope, you know, there are uh, beautiful colors and they say that, you know, stars are being created there. So it's got this powerful sword creative. That's what's up there. Well, what's down here? Well, what's so interesting to me, where it comes down on Egyptian soil, Cairo is on tap to become the largest city in the city in the in the world. You know, it's it's a huge metropolis. Well, where this comes down is in the middle of a city filled with people. It's like organic gardens. It's a bunch of. I just walked it. I that's one of my videos. I walked through there, and you hear the birds chirping, and you know, just just this pastoral setting, and it's this like oasis in the midst of this monstrous city, and so you know. To me, with big pharma and you know, uh, you know, big Bill Gates buying up farmland, you know, all around America, the idea of pure food—that's like the creation factory that's going on up in the Orion Nebula. Stars being created. This is what creates life. Good food. You know, we we need that. We we can't you know let you know contaminated food be what we eat. So, in other words hitting on, therefore, a modern issue that some people have about, you know, getting good food and not having food that's degerminated and, you know, been abused with chemicals and everything. That ended up being one of the themes of this book. 
that studying the stars in Orion and where they came down on Egyptian soil, it's saying that same thing. One other thing that, uh, you know, I, I came to was, okay, so the, uh, in, in his hand, Orion is holding a defeated lion. So there's a lion skin here. So the mighty hunter has got the club in one hand. So one thing I'm saying is Orion is, it's a symbol of judgment to come. So just like I think the Great Pyramid has prophecies of, of uh, catastrophes that are coming because that's what the original ancient legends say it would have. So, so that's Orion. That's this. That's the club. But what about the enemy that he's holding in this hand? So when I follow those stars out, it leads to parts of the 6th of October city. Now, it sounds like I'm saying a date, but they named part of what they built after a date, the 6th of October, and that's got a whole lot of meaning in it, too, that's connected to this. Which, But, but just the, at first blush here, it's a city created from nothing in the desert. It's the exact opposite of the organic community that was where the Orion Nebula is or that I experience in Giza when I live with the common people there, where they all know each other, they get along, needs are met, people. It's starting a city from nothing. There's no heritage. There's no past. It's just build a university. Build, and, and when I was there, I stayed there uh, a few days. It was, I was, you know, it's like everybody locks their doors. There's more money over there. It's kind of a cold setting. And so now you've got part of what I'm finding from studying what I thought was going to be an archaeo-astronomical study, I've got it saying there's a right way to live. The Orion correlation theory is teaching in a profound way, this is not good living. This is the enemy. This is good living over here. So again, those are not conclusions that I, or, or, that I came to. So there's more I could say, but you get in a nutshell. The, what My research led me to things that I think are meaningful, and I think they're part of what Orion is saying to today. And it didn't become what I thought it would be, a search for fourth dynasty pyramids. Although there are some there. There's really a number of them, a remarkable number of hits on pyramids and stars. So that is part of the message. And that's fascinating. So the correlation that you found, uh, that is the sword of Orion, uh, the nebula there, right, connects to that, yeah. to that organic garden down there on the yeah. on the soil of of Cairo it's not, it's, it's not just a single organic garden it's a whole section okay yeah you know so it, yeah and so i've also heard um it posited that that's uh, may not have in in the original understanding of the constellation it may not have been a sword and it may have been a phallus which would actually kind of make a pretty strange connection being a generative force if that's, you know, the nebula and the garden there at the bottom. So that's sure. that's fascinating. Sure. I, had, sure. I had never uh, never considered, obviously, because no one ever pointed that out to me. And so where do, what really sparked the interest of, of Egyptology for you? What, what really was the, what made it happen for you? Well, it started with the Great Pyramid. You know, I, I originally I was of the of the, the opinion that it alone was inspired. That that uh, you know some of the uh, you know silly to me silliness of some of the Egyptian gods and some of the polytheism was kind of you know you know crooked. And but the Great Pyramid had truly been this monument to to the Creator that had these incredible revelations in it. And when it started there, but then it, I, as it as I began to spend time there and study, I realized no, this whole this whole set up in Giza and these other pyramids in Saqqara and Dashur, this whole thing is a connected symphony of incredibleness. And so, you know, it's just been an expanding, you know, uh, symphony for me of, of, uh, of what's there. And so what motivates me is really believing that some incredible intelligence, it might've been a single person like an Einstein Imhotep you know, uh, uh, architect, or it might have been, you know, some other kind of super intelligence, but there's a tremendous intelligence that laid out what's there. And that you that there is hope of if you search, finding some of it. And, and, and the great just the way the Great Pyramid is, and it seems to invite 
seeking because these things aren't found without sending the robot up the shaft, you know, taking time to invent the robot and, and sending it up there. So it just seems like that was meant to be by the people that placed it there. So it's still saying, you know, I've got something for you. Come, come find it. I felt that same kind of a draw to Egypt when I was when I was a kid and I was in school and, you know, and we didn't even really get to Egypt until like seventh grade social studies. And I'd always been yeah. fascinated by it, you know, by the History Channel and all that types of stuff. Um, always watching documentaries any anytime I could, uh, maybe when we could afford the cable channel that was Discovery Channel or something like that. But uh, and. It, I always felt this pull towards ancient Egypt, and it wasn't actually something that I fully delved into until I was, uh, you know, in, in my 20s even. And there's, there's one aspect of it that just kind of always stuck with me, and it seemed like this was one large project. So when I heard you bring it up, uh, that you believed it to be a, a single project, maybe over a great span of time, uh, maybe even by one architect... Uh, that really resonated with me, and um, it, it also might have connections with other monolithic structures built throughout the entire world. But what is it really that makes you think that this is the work of a of a single architect or organization or something like that? Well, uh, one way, I just put a paper uh, today on academia. That's not something I've done too much, but I, you know, I have uh, made presentations at two large Egyptological conferences. So though I am an alternative researcher, I am not an Egyptologist. Um, you know, my paper was accepted. It's a blind review process. And I made presentations. And, you know, to me, it's a feather in my cap that it, at one of them, it was in 2019 in Alexandria, Virginia, I presented on the trial passages. And uh, Dr. Mark Lehner, who's the greatest, you know, Egyptological sensation associated with Giza, he went out of his way to cross a hallway and tell me what a good presentation it was. Now, I understand you mentioned the name, you know, Dr. Mark Lehner, and immediately the alternative community is, you know, he's hiding something and all this. But you, you cannot deny the work of the shovel and spade that Mark Lehner has done on Giza. You know, he has systematically sifted soil there to try and find what's truly there. He's aware of the names of Grant Hancock and John Anthony West. He's aware of the names of Dr. Shock. I've heard him talk about them. He's not unaware of what those people say, but he continues to plow ahead as a forensic scientist looking to find what's there. So say what you want about him. There's that. So so the, so the I'm first put, sort of putting my credentials in order to say that, you know, I I'm capable of putting a, a paper like I did today, as I started telling you on academia. And this one was about a discovery I just made. And this one, it's kind of like, you know, I, I sent it to a, a thousand people by do, because I put the paper in certain categories. And in academia, it tells you how many researchers are following that category. So I put in like, uh, you know, old kingdom Egypt, maybe that was, you know, 200 researchers. And then I, uh, I put in as a, as a category, uh, maybe pyramids of Giza, and maybe there's 150 researchers following that. So grand total for the tags I put on the paper I uploaded today, it told me it sent out a thousand invitations. Now, these are going to largely Egyptologists. And so what the paper was about that I'll explain to you right now is, in a sense, me slapping in the face of these guys and saying, wake up say something about this or just say it's a coincidence and it means nothing. Make fun of me or ignore me. That's probably what you're going to do. You're going to make fun of me. And if you do that, you lose, you know, you lose because if you make fun of somebody that doesn't win, so that's not going to win. And just ignoring me, that's the usual way you guys do it. But here's what I found. There's a shaft on the Giza plateau, a little bit North of the Khafre causeway, 200 feet from the famous Osiris shaft. And this unobtrusive shaft, we found out, first of all, is the center of a circle that's got a radius of 888 feet. And that, that circle, who's centered in what we're calling the holy shaft, this unobtrusive, you know, homely little shaft we found, it's 888 feet to the southeast corner of Khufu. It's 888 feet directly west to the Khafre Pyramid. It's 888 feet. It goes through the Sphinx, and it's 888 feet, and it goes through Kenkawes. 
So four major monuments are all touched by an 888-foot uh, radius circle that starts in this holy shaft, this sort of unobtrusive shaft, which when I asked the Egyptologists at Antiquities, what's the etymology of this shaft? They just said, well, it's Greco-Roman. In other words, ah, oh, that's nothing, you know, we, we, so they don't know the etymology of the shaft. So, so that wouldn't maybe be so remarkable. That, I, I mentioned that in my paper. What's remarkable is I started thinking, well, if it's exactly 888 feet, maybe it's connected to other things at Giza. So I started using Google Earth, which is a pretty good tool for getting fairly accurate distances. And I mentioned that a little bit in the paper. It's exactly 100 feet to almost every major monument on Giza. So uh, it's it, like, for instance, it's 2,300 feet exactly to the center of the Menkara pyramid. It's exactly 900 feet to the entrance of the Khufu satellite pyramid. It's exactly 2,500 feet to the easternmost of the Menkara uh, satellite pyramids. It's exactly 1,000 feet to the southwest corner of Khufu. It's exactly 200 feet to the Ostiris shaft. It's exactly 1,000 feet to the Great Sphinx. It's 1,100 feet to the Sphinx Temple. So I think I mentioned nine in the paper I published, but I said in the paper, I've got a lot more. The trial passages, the underpass of the, of the Khufu Causeway. I mean, I could go on, but I just started with eight, or, or maybe it was nine that I put in there. And I put some pictures of Go the Google Earth measurement to those sites. And I said at the end of the paper, uh, you know, Implications. So, you know, I had, I had a, you know, the usual abstract, a little couple sentence thing, a very short laying out of what I just told you. And then I had three points of implications. Number one, where, what is the etymology of the foot? Because I had a mathematician from Spain tell me there's no way that the ancient Egyptians knew the foot. But I'm telling you, there's this unobtrusive shaft that's connected to all these monuments which are at least the fourth dynasty in the old kingdom. And they're exactly 100 foot increments. So that's the first thing. What's the etymology of the foot? I don't go into it. I, I will later, it's a discussion I'd love to have, but that's the first implication. What's the etymology of the foot? Second major implication is Giza is not the work of competing pharaohs. You read the Egyptological party line, Khufu put his pyramid here, Khafre put his pyramid here, he put his sphinx over here, Menkara put it over there. There's not a way in the world, individual competing pharaohs, which is the history of the world. I used to teach world history. That is the history of the world. The history of the world is competing big guys like Caesar and Napoleon and, and uh, you know Genghis Khan doing what they want to do. That's the history of the world. Kings do what they want to do. And the Egyptologists basically follow that formula for Giza, can't be true if what I'm showing is true. There is a coordinated plan, pharaohs working in harmony with other pharaohs. What's the chances of, you know, Carter and Bush working together? What's the chances of Trump and Obama working together? What's the chances of, uh, you know, Biden and, and Trump working together? But that's what we find there based on these measurements. Because these measurements come from the, these different monuments are third, fourth, and fifth dynasty there. So there's a trans-dynastic connection, unless you say it's just by chance that you get these even 100-foot measurements from the holy shaft. And then the third, the third implication is really just a, a, an extension of the second one. And uh, it's uh, saying that you know, something along the lines that there could be a bigger message here then. It's not just look at these interesting measurements, but maybe there's a bigger message. So, uh, you know, call me in a couple of weeks and ask me what the response, if any, from, from the Egyptologist is, because, uh, you know, I, I, I threw this into their world. I'll, I'll definitely actually do that. Uh, because I, I love the juice. I love the gossip anyway. Um, so, <laughs> That now, now this is actually. I'm glad you touched on it because this was something I, I was going to ask as you as you were explaining that is um, how would everything be uh, amenable to the foot, the foot measurement. That has always been a puzzle to me uh, because sometimes it's unexplained. I have heard a couple of people say that it it uh, it's it's likely that a lot of the different measurements we use in the Western world actually come from. Uh, 
Egypt in a lot of different ways, uh, maybe. Um, and, you know, of course, it gets into the conspiracy, conspiratorial realm, of course, like Freemasons, you know, tracing their lineage back to Egypt. Um, but that uh, that doesn't seem as conspiratorial to me as it does. It's like, well, the most important people in Western civilization were Freemasons, so to share that type of knowledge. Um, so, like, you've got something like the, the hours of the day, the etymology of the word hours could possibly come from Horus, you know, Horus on the horizon. Um and so I've always thought that maybe the foot also comes from some type, it maybe has some type of Egyptian lineage, um, or at least maybe the people that, uh, the, the people that created the measurements that we use and know as the standard system could have, uh, could have modeled it on the Egyptian model explicitly so that those types of measurements would, um, would translate to feet and all that stuff. Of course, like that's way above my pay grade, but I'm glad you at least acknowledged it. Um, what? Uh, how do you think the etymology of the foot comes? How do you think that um, that these measurements? So, what did they use? They used cubits, right? So, is our cubits well, yeah, and they, feet? They, do they um, work you know, together? Sir Isaac Newton, you know, showed that you know, and, and others studied. Uh, uh, Sir William Flinders Petrie studied the king's chamber to ascertain what the length of the cubit they used was, because they plainly used, you know, the common cubit, the twenty point six two inches. But then, you know, Sir Isaac Newton shows they used the sacred cubit too of 25, uh, 25 inches, the cubit of twenty five inches too. But uh, um, you know, I I think that. Uh, and this is coming out more. So this is what I'll be getting into if, if that challenge goes anywhere, like what's the etymology for this? Because that, you know, the stuff you learn in grade school, well, the King's foot was a foot long and, you know, the King's forearm was, that's a bunch of baloney, you know, measures are sacred and, you know, having, having your scales be balanced is like a holy concept. You don't cheat people. So what is one gram? What is one foot? Those are, and I believe that the the name inch, which, you know, cubits can be given in inches, uh, you know, feet are given in inches. I think it goes back to Enoch because Enoch was the patriarch to whom is attributed the, the, the science of metrology. And, uh, you know, with the Egyptians, it's Shishat and Toth. They were the ones that, and so they the ones that kept the sacred measures. So the idea of foot, cubit, meter, that's a holy, those are holy concepts. And they did, didn't start from some, you know, well, my foot's a foot long, so that's going to be the foot for our kingdom. No, that's simply not true. They inherited different, this is an inherited standard. And I, I think absolutely that cubit, meter, and foot are ontological to nature. We simply discover it. It's already there. You know, one, one way, a simple way, uh, you know, to look at it is if, if you take a one meter pendulum. So now you've got the meter. And the meter is a, a unit that's connected to the earth. The inch is connected to the earth. The inch is a one 500 millionth uh, section of the earth's polar diameter. The meter, as the French measured it, was from the pole through Paris to the equator. So those are earth commensurate units. So what better way to measure things on earth than a measure that's taken from earth? Okay, so if you swing a one meter pendulum uh, at 30 degrees, it swings out pi over six, which is exactly one royal cubit. So those two are connected ontologically. And I think it's uh, E minus one, the Euler number, 2.718 minus one. And from that, you get the foot. And, uh, and so, you know, the, the, they're, they're connected ontologically. And I think we're just discovering this and finding this. There's a growing chorus of people that are recognizing that the cubit meter and foot are all in the Great Pyramid and that they're all connected in ancient measures. The, I first had trouble with this when I first started coming to it because I got a paper sent to me from a, a mathematician in Spain, and he said he found the meter, and he sent this to me years ago, he said he found the meter in the sarcophagus of Jadefri, you know, the son of Khufu, and he shows his measurements and stuff, and, you know, I was kind of, eh, because the, the one diagonal of the, of the sarcophagus was exactly one meter, and then I learned that in the king's chamber, the, uh, the, the, the diagonal of the long walls, you know, you've got the, the king chamber goes east and west, and it's 10 cubits north and south and 20 cubits east and west. Uh, the diagonal of the uh, north or the south long wall 
is almost exactly 12 meters. So the king's chamber itself, which is built in royal cubits, also, you know, encodes the meter and uh, it encodes uh, uh, the foot by, I think, Robert Grant showed the distance around is 3.14. You know, it's, it's related to pi in feet. So the, the king's chamber, this brilliant revelation is showing us, hey, we got the cubit, we got the meter, you know, we got the foot. Hello. I've all, you know, I also showed did a couple of videos showing the fine structure constant is in the King's Chamber, which is incredible because that's like the culmination of all modern atomic theoretical physics. You know, Feynman called it the God particle. It's the particle, you know, and uh, the, uh, you know, he even said that we won't, we'll probably never find a formula for it. But my friend Robert Grant has found a formula for alpha, the fine structure constant. So this most mysterious of constants is in the King's Chamber along with the cubit and the meter and the foot. So it's ontological and it goes back to ancient uh, wise men like Toth and Shishet, the Egyptian gods, who I think were probably based on real people like Enoch, who was a real person that knew this stuff and embedded it into architecture, knowing that that's the way it might be found in the future because books get lost and you know oral traditions get messed up. Yeah, and somehow these pyramids are still standing. You know, and, yeah, exactly. And I've there seen, I don't know if you know who Scott Onstott is, but he does this series of videos called Secrets uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, something like that. And he had okay. some, he's got some great videos on the, on the pyramids and how uh, they're, and of course it's like, I have trouble holding these numbers in my head, you know, and just being able to pull them out of memory. And I really should have actually probably gone back and watched them again. But he shows how the pyramids themselves, the, the Great Pyramid, um, is it it shares the exact same measurement on a on a smaller scale of the diameter of the earth so it's like if they were doing that inside the king's chamber and then on the outside and then not only having knowledge of the diameter the, the diameter of the earth at that time but to to put them all together in one like architectural wonder really points to not only knowledge of um you know knowledge of of things they're not supposed to have knowledge of and connecting it with the stars orion and all that stuff like that shows yeah. that shows a high high level of not just intelligence but planning cooperation it shows up yeah, it's, it's actually a, a 143,200 scale model that's of what the it earth. is and the earth resonates yeah. at 432 hertz yeah and so it's also encoding sound Yes. So it's like, where does it end, really? Like, so these guys, all the way back then, they created this this incredible thing that's just like it's math, math. Which, of course, like you would need math to build it, but it's it's very much like you were saying. It invites you to study it. It invites you to wonder how the hell this and and to maybe ship. And and okay, so what do you also think? So I've seen also that uh, these these monolithic sites point to each other a few of them like stonehenge points to i, I think it was it teotihuanaco or is it um or stonehenge the the it's the it's the the doorway of one of the stonehenges you know when the when the solstice comes through it points to somewhere in mexico or central america do you know what i'm talking about yeah sure i mean there, there's definitely connections i've done a couple uh, videos about those. And, and and since I don't do that every day, I always have to go remind myself, but I'm pretty sure I found out through my own study that if you take the uh, winter solstice diagonal through the Great Pyramid, it goes to Stonehenge. And if you take the, uh, uh, and then there's another diagonal that you take and it goes to Teotihuacan. So I, yeah, I've done a couple of programs about that. There plainly is a connection of the monuments. Of course, Carl Monk was the one that said that the Great Pyramid was the center of all those ley lines. It was the center of, the, of all that. And I, I do think its encodings are superior to all the others. But there's definitely a connection between those great megaliths that are scattered around the world. And you've probably seen they're, they're on the same lines. There's a couple of great spheres that, uh, that they line up on, you know, within a few kilometers of e either side of, of these lines. So there's plainly, you know, there was plainly an aboriginal knowledge of the globe of GPS, some kind of GPS positioning, uh, and they were capable of, uh, you know, locating these things. So, you know, that, that, that's obvious. I mean, when, when you know, uh, alternative people get all worked up because, you know, the Egyptologists won't accept it or the archaeologists won't accept it, get over it. You know, you, it's, it's obvious it's there. You know, if they, they want to, you know, argue with it or something, you know, it, the, the intelligence 
it is plainly evident from that that period. So the you know the the question is how do you explain that? How did they do that? I'm not sure we know that, but it, the the evidence is plainly there. So if you had to take a guess, would you say it was one single ancient civilization? Or what, what are your thoughts on it? Because, I mean, you've obviously got to have some ideas. Well, you know, um, I, uh, I take the, the Bible as a historical account. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good history. You know, uh, Emanuel Velikovsky, the, you know, he's an agnostic Jew. He used to, you know, take the Bible to be a, an accurate historical work. And, you know, sometimes people, they'll, they'll get all, you know, hyped up about some carbon-14 date or, or about the, uh, the younger Dryas, you know, uh, you know, and the, but you, then you mentioned the Bible. Oh no, that can't be. Well, that, what do you mean it can't be? You, you, when you look at the Younger Dryas, that's based on geologic evidence that we you can't be sure about because you're extrapolating deep into the past. So I, you know, I, so, so I mentioned that because if you if you take a, a biblical view on on this, then then something like the Tower of Babel would explain. And Belikovsky talks about this. He he studies in Mexico and other places where there was like a forgetfulness that happened when there was a. Uh, some kind of solar flare, and it and it. Uh, I actually had amnesia one day in my life when I fell off a barn, and uh, experience, you know, experience quote unquote not knowing anything about that day. And so Velikovsky says that that happened worldwide, and he, he gives some evidence in uh, Earth and Upheaval, Worlds in Collision is basically his chronological work, and then Earth and Upheavals where he gathers evidence to show that these you know ancient things happened. And he was, he was laughed out of the scientific community in the 1950s. Harlow Shapley from Harvard tried to get his, the publisher Doubleday to not publish the book, very anti-scientific. But, uh, you know, I think most of what Velikovsky came up with through studying the past, including the Bible, but any ancient source, uh, you know, it was true. And so, you know, that would explain the amnesia. Like, how did we forget? How did we lose touch with the people that build those things? You know, and so if there was a Tower of Babel, which led to a dumbing, because I do think there was probably a single language before that. And so, you know, Noam Chomsky, the linguist, said the, the, the best explanation for the origin of languages is the Tower of Babel. Now, of course, he wasn't a Bible believer. He was, you know, probably the world's leading linguist. But he just said, if you have to try and explain it, that's as good an explanation as any. So so you, you take Belikovsky, the idea that some kind of solar flare led to this, you know, massive forgetfulness or something. So that would explain how we've lost touch with it. And then if there was a single language and, you know, there was this, some kind of telepathic or other form of communication that we've lost touch with, well, we sort of started over after, you know, the Tower of Babel fell or whatever you want to say that event was. So, so, you know, people might not like that explanation because it touches based on the Bible and that seems to be a no-no for a lot of people, but really what, what else are you going to say? There's plainly evidence of a connected society through these megaliths. It's plainly telling us we were connected at one time, but we lost the record of how that happened. It's sort of like hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics are a beautiful language. How did we lose what those mean? But we did. And I'm not sure the reconstruction we've had after the Rosetta Stone really gets to the depth of what's really in there, because those were called the words of God. The hieroglyphics mean something like the words of God. You know, there's special spiritual messages in those. And I think we've ended up interpreting them pretty, pretty uh, mechanistically. And there's other people that have said that, too. So even though have we have we really recovered hieroglyphics? But the point is, we did lose it. How does that happen? Now, that's something that takes place in historic times. Because that's a story we can follow. The Greeks come in, they take over Egypt, they still like being the kings, they still build down in Luxor and Karnak, they still, you know, but somehow the Greek language takes over and hieroglyphs are lost and parents don't say, hey, this is holy, I don't care what the Greeks do, we're going to keep learning hieroglyphics. No, you didn't. You let it get lost. That beautiful language was lost. That happened in historic times. We can't understand that. Well, the loss of this knowledge from the ancient uh, megalithic sites, we don't have the history of how that happened, but it happened. So somehow a great intelligence from the past got lost and we started over. And so when the alternatives get all mad at the Mark Laners, it's because the Mark Laners start history from where the, where the reset began. 
So that that's what the, when I taught world history, that's where we start. You know, so. And I always kind of liken it to uh, the way that they teach World War One. You know, starting at at the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You know, it's a lot like yeah. that. There was a lot that went on before that. You know, you got to untangle it. Yeah. And you know, thank God, yeah. thank God for Ptolemy. You know, whatever whatever that dynasty did down there in Egypt. I mean, at least he had the uh, the foresight to translate it into into Greek. You know, translate some. You know, yeah. give us something to work with. You know, yeah. And who know who That's knows true. if if he's even the reason. That, I mean, the the Greeks very may well could have been the reason that it was stamped out in the first place, unless it was like you know just a great forgetting. So, and I mean, and who was it? Was it uh? It was it was the expedition of Napoleon that found the Rosetta Stone, right? Is that right? Probably. I think so. Probably, yeah. I I, I yeah. think so. It was about that time, yeah. Um, yeah. So. I mean, where do we go with this? I mean, my mind was going in a million different directions. Well, it, this has just been fascinating. Like, uh, I, I love these conversations. And, and really, uh, my, my podcast centers a lot around current events. So it's nice to go deep into the ancient past to get away from this crap sometimes. But um, so, <laughs> well, you know, quite frankly, you know, that that's one thing that, that I've done, Jay, because when I told you I taught political science at the college level, and I was always a uh, taught my students to be freedom fighters. I taught them the, uh, the, the uh, ideas of freedom that came out of the enlightenment and how, you know, they were, they were good and they were new and they're the cutting edge of uh, really modernity. And now we're taking giant steps backwards with, uh, with what's going on in the world today. But I, I left making that, that current events thing, being a freedom fighter. I respect everybody that's doing that now, even as they lose their YouTube channels, their Twitter accounts, and as they're deprogrammed, censored, and fined, I still respect them. But I have chosen to put my energies into this, and I've left the freedom fighting, and I've gotten into the trying to decipher the ancient past, believing that there's something eternal here, and uh, and I won't be as quickly thrown in prison as if I was a freedom fighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I always say like, uh, you know, my story will end with a uh, with with an approaching white van with uh, no windows. Uh, yeah, no, I actually just... <laughs> you know, you know, let me say this too. You know, uh, uh, you know I was thinking uh, today, because, you know, political science is, is one, of my, one of my trainings. It's, it's one of my master's degrees. And, uh, you know, uh, if you looked at what are the, the set of trainings that Egyptologists have. So if you looked at the, the resume of all, the, all major Egyptologists, they tend to be like Near Eastern languages and uh, disciplines like that. And there's very little political science, because I got to thinking today that implication of that question I talked to you about early on about the holy shaft, which I discovered, and the connection between that, well, that leads to a political science question, well, how were the pharaohs organized? How could there, by what would could have there have been a unity? You know, and so those kind of things, and, and really, Egyptologists act as experts in everything when it comes to ancient Egypt, and they, their, their word trumps everything. So Chris Dunn can come along as an engineer and say some things. And even though Egyptologists are not engineers, they can really easily dismiss him. And they do. And they don't have to talk about him because we dismissed him. So, so they, the hubris, part of the hubris of Egyptology is that if it's anything relates to Egyptology, they are the experts. They are the last word. They are the National Geographic. They are the Smithsonian. They are the Harvard. They are the last word. And so uh, they are not political scientists. They're not engineers. And yet they trump anything a political scientist or an engineer might say, because Egyptology, when it comes to Egypt, we are the final word. So it's a, uh, it's a great hubris. And the explanation of, of how society was set up back then was just like a total uh, autocratic society, right? With the, the god king at the head and his his priests and then, you know, petty bureaucrats and then the people on the bottom that built the pyramids. You know, it doesn't seem to right. be much nuance in in the social structure of ancient Egypt. And I feel like there's just not enough evidence to draw that conclusion, you know, there, there doesn't seem, I, I mean, I haven't come across like um, anyone studying, you're right, like the political science of the age. I mean, have you come across any, any, like, any explanations that uh, satisfy you? Well, you know, um, when, when I presented in Alexandria in uh, 2019 at the uh, American Research 
uh, center. Uh, there, there was one of the largest Egyptological conferences in the world. I don't normally dwell among those people. That's when I made my presentation about the trial passages. I, I presented a paper the next year, but, but because COVID had hit, it was going to be in Toronto. They ended up making it virtual. And so in 2020, I presented virtually uh, to that group of Egyptologists. But when I was there in person in 2019, I went to a lot of different lectures. And so I, I, I was interfacing now with a culture that I wasn't used to, the culture of Egyptologists. And it was I was fascinated by a lecture a guy from the University of Chicago gave about uh, the tombs in Luxor. And basically what he was saying is, you know, to make a modern analogy would be like, you know, Jay, you decide you want to be buried in, uh, in, uh, you know, the, the national cemetery there in, in uh, you know, outside Washington, DC. And so you just go and put your grave, you know, you put your, put your tombstone in there and have your people bury you there. He said there was no, because that wouldn't be true in a highly centralized society like we have. Arlington is for certain people and you don't decide to put yourself there. We decide who gets buried in Arlington. That's a very centralized culture like we have. He was making the point that there's a mix of burials. You've got the, the King Tuts, but then there's, you know, there's Johnny Know-Nothing who's got a little, little tomb over there. And so he, he, was, he was saying it, it was really a decentralized situation, which is not normally what you think about. Now, he's not a political scientist, but he was just recognizing that there was a decentralized situation there. And that made me think of when I used to teach world history about India, because we teach when you teach about India, the cohesiveness of Indian society isn't like in America, where you have strong central government, you know, you, you're part of a state government, you're part of a federal, there's laws everywhere, and that holds us together. We have courts and judges, and it's a society. What holds India together is not a very tight political system. It's actually pretty weak. It's a religion. It's religious beliefs. So you don't touch that cow, not because the government made a law that you can't touch that cow. It's because that's what people believe. And so there's tremendous decentralization in India, but there's a tremendous cohesiveness because of religion. That's what I thought of when this professor was talking about the, the uh, decentralization of the, of the uh, burials in Luxor and in Thebes. And so, and so, and he talked and he mentioned the Khufu exception. So now you go to Giza and there's this very organized system of tombs. Khufu's got, you know, places for all his relatives and his officials. It's very organized. You don't find somebody snuck his tomb in there. And the fact that he called it the Khufu exception shows to me that there must be some understanding then among Egyptologists that there wasn't this total top-down hierarchical, the king's the boss, because in many periods in Egypt, the nomarchs were, were, were very powerful. And so, you know, the, the pharaoh had to... So, so the point is, what tied Egypt together was these religious beliefs, you know, that and, and, and the exception where there was a strong centralized government evidenced by a huge pyramid being built, because I do think Khufu built it, and, uh, and, and also all the whole tomb structure, the whole way that Giza is laid out. So he called that the Khufu, excuse, the Khufu exception. So I guess there is that recognition, uh, you know, at least among those Egyptologists that the that, that, uh, there wasn't always a totally centralized bureaucracy. What held Egypt together was these laws. Because think about it, you know, we, I mean, artistic styles change in America. You know, it's romanticism for a few years, and then it's cubism, you know, and then it's surrealism. There's one kind of art in Egypt for thousands of years. There's one kind of scribal technique for thousands of years. There's this very strong, like India has Hinduism holding it together all these years. You had that same kind of cohesive power, but not a governmental centralization power. And so the respect for the pharaoh came not because, except under, you know, uh, Amenhotep III or somebody like that, there wasn't the fear he was going to come with his minions and, and get you out in the outer lying areas. It was that that's not what God wants. That's not what our beliefs tell us. So there, you know, there was this cohesiveness that wasn't built on what we often think a centralized pharaoh. Okay, so what do you think about uh, the theories that those pyramids, the Giza Plateau, and and the Sphinx 
well, Sphinx is, because there's two, which I actually didn't even know. For, I don't know how that slipped past me. I didn't know there was a second Sphinx until I, uh, I saw your work. Um, what do you think about the theories that that, that complex is older than Khufu, predates ancient Egypt and goes back to like ancient, ancient Kemet well, or something well that, like that? that, that uh, the, the Giza Plateau is plainly older than the fourth dynasty. And, and I think it's had a, uh, a holy, a holy, it's like a holy spot for long before the fourth dynasty. You know, uh, there's a tradition that says that Enoch, the patriarch was translated there, just like we say, you know, Mohammed was taken up to heaven at, you know, the, the Dome of the Rock or wherever that was. And, you know, Jesus ascended. They say that Enoch ascended from from Giza. And that was long, 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 long before uh, there was an Egyptian, you know, dynasty in there. So, so the question becomes, what was there anciently and what that's there now is connected to that past? That past plainly existed. I'm giving you that. That's obvious. That that there there was this ancient past there. But I don't jump to the conclusion so many do, and there therefore say everything that's there is still connected. For instance, you know, when they say, well, this is this, I commonly hear this. Well, they just, you know, Khufu just padded on a little bit the Great Pyramid. Like it was the ancient structure from those brilliant people from the past, the Atlanteans, whoever, and Khufu just touched it up. I, I got news for you. That that doesn't take but five minutes of study to throw that out the window. What did Khufu just add to it? The last thing that went on that pyramid was the casing stones, the, po- the highly polished limestone casing stones, which are now on mosques all over Cairo. Flinders Petrie says about those, that those were done with the scale of a jeweler's optics and, and that, the, that the, the joints between those perfectly fitting casing stones was 150th of an inch and the mortar was still full there. Both slabs put together a 50th inch apart still are filled with mortar. How did they do that? Well, the point is, if Khufu, that was the last thing that went on that pyramid. So Khufu either added nothing. But if he added anything, that was the last thing to go on. The last thing to go on is probably one of the most amazing things of anything that's in it. So you can't you can't use that argument either. And and there's too much evidence. You know, I I wrote a book review on uh, uh, Scott Crichton's book about the Great Pyramid hoax. And, you know, he he admits his position is he thinks it's older. So he goes out of his way to try and say Howard Weiss forged that those Khufu inscriptions up in the relieving chambers. He has to prove that because if you don't, that's the strongest archaeological evidence there is that that was built in the time of Khufu. And what Scott Crichton, who's, who's a good researcher, and I totally agree with his last, last chapter where he says the Egyptian government should go up there and really study that and, and release the findings of the world. Because let's stop and think about it. There's going to be a huge difference that Howard Weiss forged it in the 1800s versus it was actually written like 5,000 years ago by Khufu. There should be a major difference because Scott Crichton admits some of it is actual. Some of the Scott Crichton himself, the guy that's the strongest, you know, guy writing the book against it, says it's that's real. It's you know, as a matter of fact, when when Zahi Was took up, you know, took took up their, you know, uh, Graham Hancock, Robert Babal, and John Anthony West, they all made tremendously strong statements. That's real, and you're crazy if you think it is. Now, a lot of times their followers don't believe that. They don't want to admit that Graham Hancock, Robert Babal, and John Anthony West said in the strongest terms when they came out of there, that's real. Graham Hancock said it. John Anthony West said it, the strongest of all of them. He says, you're crazy if you think that, if you don't think that, that that was done by Khufu. So what does Scott Crichton say then against all that evidence? He says that Vice forged just some of it. Okay. And, uh, and so uh, here's the thing that Scott Crichton can't get around. One of the things that Vice forged was the one of the, the Majedu name, uh, the Horus name for Khufu, which no Egyptologist in the world knew at that time. So somehow, gunpowder happy Howard Weiss, the scheming, you know, fake Egyptologist, knew more than all the Egyptologists in the world because he knew how to forge that name. So here's how Scott Crichton, and he hides this in his book. He, he hides the way he's doing it, but he, he, he'd admit right now, if, he, if he's listening to this, that I'm, what I'm saying is just true. He says that 
Vice found some inscriptions. Didn't tell anybody about them, which doesn't sound like Howard Vice to me, because anytime he discovered anything, he always told everybody and wrote it in his journal and stuff. So, so Scott Crichton says he found a group of inscriptions. And then he had his men draw those into the relieving chambers. And it just happened to be that in these group of inscriptions he found, which he never told anybody about, never wrote in his journal, and we don't have to this day. It just happened to be that one of the ones that was in this stash of, you know, characters he found happened to have the Majedu name for Khufu. And Scott Crichton begins talking in his book as if that has been found. He, he, he offers it as a real data point, but Scott, it's never been found. That's never been found. You can't prove that Vice happened to find these inscriptions, which he didn't know what they meant, and then told his, his disciples to go draw it up there. <laughs> Sorry, that's not working for me. That's just not working for me. And plus, the strongest evidence he uses against Vice, because he's got to discount his character, he says that Vice paid for votes when he ran for parliament. Now, to his credit, to his credit, he quotes people from the time that say, oh, by the way, everybody did it. So Biden did it. Trump did it. Obama did it. Everybody did it. So is Vice the terrible guy that you'd think he is? If you just heard, you know, Jay, you got elected and I just found out you paid everybody that voted for you. That's terrible. We think you're the worst. Until you find out that is what everybody did. And that's what people say today. And he even quotes, Crichton even quotes in his book that people back then said on the stand, quote, quote, unquote, that's the way everybody did it. So you haven't really demonized Howard Weiss as much as you wanted to by simply saying he paid people, hey, thanks for voting for me. Here's, here's some cash. Because everybody did it. So you're, 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 not the, you're not a demon if you do what everybody does. Do you ever sped, Jay? You ever drive a car and go above the posted speed limit? Never, not even once. Never, me either, me either, mm. you liar. <laughs> <laughs> I, am a, I am a moral paragon. Um, and you know what, too? And I'm, I'm happy you, you said that, too, because I was going to say, you know, that, that that was standard practice for the time. But there was, uh, I, I had no idea about that little saga um, and, and that, uh, that Hancock, Duval, and West had gone up there and confirmed that it was written in the time of Khufu. I had no idea. But one reason I, I have a lot of respect for those, those guys in particular is because when new evidence does show up, they're willing to change their view based on the new evidence. I mean, there's stuff in Fingerprints of the Gods that is just no longer defendable, and, and Hancock is not shy about it. He'll say, no, I got this, this, and that wrong. You know, I mean, I'll, I'm finding stuff out. I'm discovering stuff, you know, discovering new stuff. And so why doesn't that... Um, the same way that it does with those men, why doesn't that filter down to Egyptologists? Why do they still have their, their heels dug on their very, their very particular way of looking at e Egyptology? Yeah, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I'd like to bring up something I wrote recently, but I, I'd have trouble finding it, where I tried to be very articulate about what I say about Egyptologists, uh, you know, because it you know, I, I hate to just roll without having my notes there to, 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 to make a mistake, but basically, yeah, uh, they're, they're in denial about a lot of things. You know, again, I, I tend to find myself defending them just because it's almost like devil's ad because so many, you know, alternative researchers are just against them. And I'm trying to point out the things that they have done right. And, and even like Hawass, not, you know, uh, you know, not telling exactly what he's finding and doing the robot work up there. Well, you probably wouldn't tell either until you really had something. And the idea they're hiding something, you know, are they hiding something about, do you really think that Mark Lehner and Zahi Was found the Hall of Records? Do you think in their, in their perusing the Sphinx in places that they won't admit to us, they've really gone. Do you think they found the Hall of Records? And then, ooh, they don't want to tell anybody because that'll look like, I don't believe that for a minute. I think if Zahi Was found the Hall of Records, he'd want to be famous for that, and he would put it out there. Trust me. You know, I've toured with Zahi Was 2014 and 2015, and you know, I've been in Mark Laner's home. So, I mean, I those guys, you know, that would be a, a feather in their cap. The idea that they're hiding something—that's usually the way I end up defending them, saying that you know they're conservative forensic scientists, and and you guys are you know jump on the latest esoteric. You know, it's it's the upper dryas. It's you know it's it's uh, Gobekli Tepe. You're just going to jump on whatever you can. But but that having said that that being said, they are also uh, 
you know, uh, almost hopelessly um, incestuous. If, if, if you're not an Egyptologist, I don't need to listen to you. I don't need to, and that, that's the story right there. There it is right there. So, so they, they, they write papers because you, you look at the papers on academia, the papers they write. And so they're all writing about things that they're writing about and stuff. Something comes in from the outside from someone that's not an Egyptologist. So, you know, it's, that's why I said, I've, I've said this from the beginning. I wrote a long time ago to Robert Voss. I said, just get over it. You guys, you keep saying, why don't they accept the Orion correlation theory? Why don't they, don't wait for them. You've you sold millions of books. Just be happy with the people you've got. You've got those people. They've got the people that like to, you know, cling on the mainstream. Just be content with what you've got. I mean, you know, it's, they're, you can't, you can't win the whole world to your side. So take the people you've got, you know, look at all the people that do respect Graham Hancock and follow him, Robert Baval, John Anthony West, Robert Schock, you know, they've got a profound, large following. Be content with that, you know, instead of slamming all the time, you don't, to me, it doesn't look good to you guys when you're all the time slamming them. Show us what you have, you know, show us what you have. Don't tell me what Zahi West doesn't have. Tell me what you have. But the charge, the charge where it does come down, though, is Scott Crichton's book, his last chapter. I totally agree with him. They should do that research. It should be easy to prove if this glyph was forged 200 years ago or 150 years ago versus one that was actually written 5,000 years ago. That should be pretty easy to prove. Why don't you get the hell up there and prove it? You know, why not? But, you know, gee, I'm led to believe, honestly, a friend of mine, uh, an engineer, uh, sometimes he, you know, he, he gets visions and stuff. And he had this dream and it was really uh, just quickly interpret the dream. It was like, there's a couple big shots that are going to fall in Egypt. And of course, I'm thinking Zahi Was, you know, maybe he'll die or something. But that he he was saying that the tide's going to turn. You know, the thing that Graham Hancock ultimately hopes for, and, and your question to me is implicitly hoping for, because I think this new department of, of uh, antiquities which, you know, they've done this unusual thing that nobody other country has done. They merged antiquities and tourism. Now, nobody does that because antiquities is hard science. It's archaeology. You know, it's the, the muon scans, which is, you know, radio technology. You're going to merge that with tourism. Hey, come to Egypt. Egypt is the greatest place in the world. You're going to merge. And, but they did. And it's for the good, I think, because the reason you've heard so much out of Egypt the past year, all the mummies they took out of Saqqara, just yesterday there was an announcement by Waziri, the head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities, about a new uh, set of uh, openings in, in Saqqara, you know, the King Zoser's special room, just opened yesterday, and this is publicized around the world. Why? Because they merged antiquities and tourism. And I think that there's younger people coming up. And look at look at Rania El-Mashat, who's now the, the minister for... Uh, they created a special position for her because she was the minister of tourism. She's, she's uh, you know, good looking. She's articulate. She's smart. She doesn't wear the Muslim garb. So she's a great role model for, for, for young girls in, in that country. And uh, they moved when they when they closed tourism to join to antiquities. They gave her something like a minister of uh, economic minister of development, but also with other countries and stuff. So she's like the a face around the world for, for Egypt. So, you know, that, that, that spirit end up could be a good thing. They want people to come. They want tourism. They want, they're proud of their past. They want these discoveries to go out. And if there's a hall of records that's found there, you know, wouldn't that be part of the glory of Egypt? It's hidden in the Sphinx. Even if it's from a previous culture, they, they chose to hide it in Egypt. It's still their deal. For instance, you know, Zahi was, was always against, if you, you know, watch the older over movies of him, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe when they would talk about some kind of muon scanning, some kind of, you know, high tech. He doesn't say that anymore. There's too many people around him now that recognize that muon scan, that's real science. So he has joined the party on that now. He now looks at that as real science. He's no longer the minister of antiquities. He's no longer the head of the Supreme Council of Antiquity, but he still holds a seat on the Supreme Council of Antiquity. And you still, when Waziri, Khalid Alanani, the, the Minister of Tourism, these guys always call Zahi to be there when they show something, display something. So he's still around. 
But I do think he's fading. And I think the new face that's coming could be one that's open to new ideas. And it's open to maybe let's go, let's go do the research up there on the, you know, the, the, that what's up in the relieving chambers. So hopefully a better day is coming. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that too. I had just read in the Smithsonian about the the new discoveries they've made in Saqqara. And now that I'm actually thinking about it, everybody that they were speaking to was was young, was younger. They were in their 30s and 40s. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe there is a, a new guard about to take to take over. That's that seems pretty hopeful to me. And you know what? Um, we could we could wrap it up on that note because I like to f- somehow naturally find a way to to wrap up episodes with hope because it it doesn't happen very often. Um, yeah. So, Larry, I want to thank you a million times over for coming on the show, man. This is this was fascinating. I learned a lot, and uh, I'm definitely gonna dig more into your work. And I would love to have you back on the podcast again. This was definitely like this was definitely a, a treat for me. This was like a banana split when usually I just eat <laughs> chicken and rice. So, um, yeah, well, thanks, Jay. You know, I I enjoyed talking about. It. I hope I didn't. Uh monopolize or something but you know thanks for having me nope that's why i have guests on i don't have guests on so people could listen to me so um <laughs> yeah can you just let the people know where they can find you on um uh so find your website instagram all the places that they can find you sure uh i'm taking a little hiatus on instagram but i'll probably come back to it so that's at, uh sage silent at sage silent is my uh, instagram handle and i suppose my video even though i haven't been going on there recently i'm sure you could look at a lot of my videos on there until I start posting there again. And then uh, my YouTube channel, uh, the best search to do is Great Pyramid AIP is one word, uh, AIP, the American Institute of Pyramid Research. So that's the Great Pyramid AIP. If you do that as one word, my channel always comes up and you can see my my videos there. Uh, as I said, uh, I've got the top level domain name. So great, since uh, the American Institute for Pyramid Research is a not-for-profit research think tank, we have the appropriate designation. It's .org. So it's greatpyramid.org. And you can find the web stuff there, information about the tour that I've got coming up. There are still openings uh, for the October tour. It's a small group. You know, COVID has hit hard, but Egypt's wide open. I was there in April, had a great time, had 10 people with me. So uh, there's still room uh, October 20th to 30th. If you want to come with me, greatpyramid.org, check it out. And, uh, you know, I'm on uh, Twitter at, uh, at Director AIP. Fantastic, Larry. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Okay, Jay, thanks for having me. Bye-bye.